This is an ABC podcast. For the third day in a row, Minneapolis is burning. The demonstrators converged on the police precinct where the officers involved in the death of George Floyd were stationed. This was the moment Rayshard Brooks was killed. Two bullets to the back. Officer Garrett Wolfe pulled the trigger. The Black Lives Matter. We want change. And back in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd died, city council members backed calls for the police department there to be disbanded. There's a growing push for funding to be diverted away from policing and invested in the community. The recent killings of two African-American men, George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks, at the hands of white police, has raised questions about race and policing across the United States. Americans are asking if these killings were the actions of a few rogue officers or something more sinister. And also, if American police forces can be reformed, or if they're so dysfunctional they need to be defunded and built again from scratch. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. To understand American police forces today, you need to understand how they developed and the history of their relationship with the African-American community. Bill Allison is Professor of History at Georgia Southern University. It's really Boston, Philadelphia and New York that are the first major American cities that form police departments that you would recognize today as police departments. Most cities in America up to that time probably just had a handful of constables, maybe a few districts set up within their city limits. But there might only be, like for a city like Memphis or New Orleans or, you know, Chicago even, 25 or 30 police officers or constables, and that's it. And why was there, why did people think they needed a police force at this point? During that time, talk about the 1820s, 30s and 40s, there's a lot of growth in cities because of the market revolution, early industrialization, better transportation, that sort of thing. There's also a lot of immigration at that time, especially from Ireland by the time you get to the 1830s and 40s. So cities are growing rapidly. New York City's population was doubling like every 15 to 20 years throughout the 1800s. So you got a lot of crime. But also along with that, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of political corruption with businesses, with building inspectors, as well as police officers. In the late 1800s, all the way through Prohibition, all the way to about the 1950s, the people who controlled the police were the dominant political parties in each major city. Gary Potter, Professor Emeritus in the College of Justice and Safety at Eastern Kentucky University. If you were the leader of, let's say, the Republican Party of Philadelphia, which was the dominant party at the time, and you needed a ward leader to get out the vote, The person you would choose was a saloon keeper. Only men had the vote. Men would, after work, always stop by the saloon. The saloon keeper was also running some illegal gambling, usually a little illegal prostitution, supplying alcohol, and was given the power to select the police captain or police sergeant for that precinct and the jailer for that precinct. So the police were integral to the political machine, thereby becoming thoroughly corrupt. They were also integral to industrialization, thereby using incredible brutality and force and arrest 
to try to control labor organizations. If you look at the city of Chicago in the 1880s or the city of Buffalo in the 1880s, you'll find in a given year as much as a million arrests for things like vagrancy, loitering, and the ever-popular refusal to disperse, which was designed entirely to prevent any kind of gatherings of of workers trying to unionize. You know, there's a myth about the police in the United States, but probably everywhere, that the function of the police department from the very beginning was to, quote-unquote, keep citizens safe. And that's just simply not true. Simon Balto is Associate Professor of African-American Studies History at the University of Iowa. In Chicago, the police department there was originally organized in the 1850s, and the people who pushed for its implementation were the city's wealthy elites and business owners, and they were really concerned about two things. They were concerned about the, quote-unquote, like unruly and undesirable behavior of immigrants from Europe. In particular, they thought it was a grievous affront to the local public that German and Irish immigrants drank so heavily. And so the police department there is founded basically to A, control these immigrants, and B, to fight against labor militancy. So, you know, you have this huge working class of people who are, as the, as the 1800s are, are going on, especially in the 1860s and 1870s, there's a huge spike in strikes and demands for better working conditions for eight-hour days. And one of the primary police functions is to try to crush strikes and arrest labor radicals. You know, in a place like Chicago, the police force is literally founded and funded by the wealthiest people in the city in order to protect their own interests. In the southern states of America, however, where half the population were African-American, the development of police departments had a very different history. In the southern states, even before the United States is established in the colonies, policing in the south kind of develops more from the militia tradition, which comes from England during the colonial period, than slave patrols. 10 or 12 white men with probably a larger local landowners who has a lot of slaves. Early on, these slave patrols are not regulated very well. And they're riding around out there and they catch a slave that's off the the property. They beat them up pretty badly and sometimes kill them. Slave patrols are literally charged with surveilling black bodies and acting as police and arresting people for committing the crime of trying to, for example, steal themselves to freedom. And so you have these forces that essentially operate as proto-police and their authority and the, you know, sort of the constitution of these forces bleeds very heavily into formalized police authority. In the South, you know, if you want to get into the kind of the background of institutionalized racism, in police departments, that slave patrol tradition is very strong, and it continues even after slavery is abolished. Slavery ended officially in the South at the end of the Civil War in 1865. Leonard Moore is Professor of History at the University of Texas. You had a period of time after the Civil War, about five years, where there were some great advancements made. And we have to understand that after the Civil War, Formerly enslaved Africans did several things. Number one, they left the plantation. Number two, they changed their names. Number three, they reunited their families. Number four, they purchased land. Number five, they built churches. And number six, they 
built schools. So you had about a five to 10 year window where there were a lot of gains made. But after the election of 1877, white Southerners, they they took the South back from the North and basically white Northerners pretty much stayed out of the Southern's race problem. And what you see after this period we call Reconstruction is you see a rise in lynching, you see sharecropping, which is an economic situation that kept people in perpetual debt You see disenfranchisement where the right to vote was taken away and convict leasing, where large numbers of Africans, particularly men, and formerly enslaved African men were now criminalized and put back on the plantation for their punishment or sentence. Until the 20th century, there were very few African Americans in northern cities. The overwhelming majority, close to 90%, lived in the South. But as the brutality increased and opportunities decreased, many African Americans moved north. People generally talk about the movement of black people from the U.S. South to the U.S. North as the Great Migration. And really, it's broken down into two periods of time. So there's the first Great Migration that really begins in the mid-19-teens and lasts up until the end of the 1920s. And the best guess, the best sort of estimate that we have is about you know one to one and a half million Black Americans left the South and moved to northern cities during that time period. That number was dwarfed substantially by the second Great Migration, which begins really in the 1940s and lasts through the 1960s. All told, we're talking about an exodus of six to seven million people from the South to the North. The reasons why people left were complicated. But the most basic answer is that the U.S. South was an immensely brutal, immensely racist, and immensely repressive place for Black people to live at that point in time. We're talking about an extraordinarily violent society, one that seeks to repress all Black ambition, to curtail Black opportunity, and oftentimes to simply end Black lives. As soon as I got on that train, I felt free. Sure, I was sitting in the Jim Crow section up front where all the coal and dust rose up, got in the windows and ruined my clothes. But the chugging of the train couldn't hardly keep up with the beating of my heart. Initially, police forces tried to keep African-Americans from leaving the South and going to the North. You know, there are many cases where police forces would show up at train stations and bus depots and either prevent African-Americans from getting on buses or trains or forcibly remove those people who were on buses or trains because that was the, the South's labor force leaving. In Chicago, there were no signs that said color folks on one side, white folks on the other. When we got off the train, everybody went through the same door to the same waiting room. There was no sneaking in the back way to Chicago. That's one of the myths of the American experience. Whites were just as racist in the North as they were in the South. Some of the worst lynching incidents in American history took place in Minneapolis in the early 1900s. They have a long history of racial violence. They just don't have the overt racism that you had in the South because there weren't that many African-Americans. You know, that population wasn't that big in these places. Then when it grows, it's like, oh, wait a minute. These people have moved into my neighborhood. I don't like it. A, this has changed. B, they're different. C, they may be a threat to my economic livelihood. So it was there. It was just latent. It's under the surface. And it took these migrations to kind of 
reveal it, to bring it to the surface. And it explodes, you know, in 1919. Chicago, circa 1919, was a city on edge. At the time, Chicago was a tinderbox of racial tensions. The black community, which had more than doubled from nearly 50,000 to more than 100,000 in two short years, was mostly restricted to living in a small area on the south side called the Black Belt. When they tried to move out, they faced backlash. The short answer to how white communities responded to black in-migration was with violence. The year 1919 is often framed as the year of what were called the quote-unquote red summers. So Chicago experiences one of these, but they, ha they occur in a lot of different places. And it's not only confined to 1919, it's really confined to the early years of the Great Migration. You know, in Chicago, over the span of the years 1917 and 1921, there were nearly 60 black homes or businesses that were bombed. Police never arrested anybody for any of these crimes. And it was just generally assumed, I think, by most members of the police department that white violence to black in-migration was essentially a legitimate response. The broader role of the police in all of this was, generally speaking, to just turn a blind eye to white-on-black violence. When Chicago descends into the race riot in 1919, in which 38 people are killed, a majority of them black, but some white as well, because black people fought back. When the smoke clears on this week-long chaotic violence, the picture is already becoming pretty clear of what had happened, which is that white terrorists essentially tried to kill as many black people and terrorize as many black people as they possibly could. And then you had some black people that responded in self-defense. So that was the basic story that was that should have been clear to anyone who wasn't looking at things with racist eyes. But the legal picture in terms of who police had arrested, who police brought charge, you know, who people brought charges against, who was convicted, it was a picture that you would have thought that this was an incident in which black people were out on the rampage trying to massacre as many white people as possible. So a true inversion of what had actually taken place. Chicago's police department at that point in time is it almost uniformly white. So they essentially act as racial partisans when it comes to interracial violence, where they side with white community members and do very little to actually protect black life and property. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're tracing the history of race and policing in the United States. Unlike the South, northern cities had no formal system of segregation. But by the 1920s, all northern cities had public policies that ensured the separation of neighbourhoods, thereby creating some of the most segregated cities in America. A city like Chicago did not have that much in the way of formalised segregation that was written into any sort of legal codes in the 19-teens. But really, in the 1920s, in some ways, in response to continued black immigration policymakers begin to adopt what were known as restrictive covenants, which were clauses that were written into the deeds of homes that essentially said, this is a house that is owned by a person of the quote-unquote Caucasian race and can never be rented or sold to someone of, of a different race. So these basically get written into the deeds for homes all across cities, all across the United States. And you're right about the, the North being more, more segregated. I mean, when you look at a list of the most segregated cities in the United States right now, they're all northern cities. It's places like Chicago. It's places like Detroit. It's places like New York, Cleveland. It's, it's all of these northern cities that have 
incredible segregation based upon these public policies that are vestiges of racist ideas about black people that date back 100 years. White police officers are having to go into these new black areas of big cities, and they're not getting out of their cars. They don't want to walk those beats. They're afraid. There's a lot of suspicion. There's this white guy in a uniform walking around with a big stick and a pistol. And you can understand clearly why you know, African-Americans in that neighborhood are probably a little suspicious or a little afraid. Would it have been different if they had been African-American police officers working in those neighborhoods or maybe white officer and a black officer together? Yes, that would have made a big difference, I think. But you still weren't at the point yet where police departments are willing to integrate by any stretch, much less even hire black officers. What's interesting, especially during the Second Great Migration, beginning in the 1950s and then continuing onward, Chicago Police Department really begins to take significantly less interest in white people. In a city like Chicago today, it's very, very difficult to be arrested while white. I mean that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the statistics bear it out. I mean, the police just don't arrest white people. And when that begins to shift, really happens in the early years of the Second Great Migration, where if you look at a graph of what black arrest totals were looking like and black arrest rates were looking like versus white arrest totals and rates, they essentially crisscrossed in the 1950s with black rates on an upward trajectory and white ones on a downward trajectory. And that really was because there's all of these various pieces of policy put into place that specifically identify black people as a problem population. One of the most striking documents that I came across is a report that circulated within the Chicago Police Department in the early 1960s that basically said, we can anticipate that over the course of the remainder of the 1960s, Chicago's black population is going to increase by 20%. So what they do is then take that number and request a 20% budget increase and a 20% staffing increase, despite knowing nothing about who these people are who are going to be moving into the city of Chicago. They just assume that because the city is going to get blacker, they need more police. By the 1960s, African Americans began demanding civil rights, both through the political process and on the streets. By the mid-60s, there was an entire lexicon of names that white America now recognized. Baldwin and King, Wilkins and Young, Malcolm X, Carmichael, McKissick, Brown, Meredith. And there was the fire in Harlem and Huff, and in the summer of 1965, in Watts. Sirens, fire engines, ambulances, police cars, burglar alarm. Absolutely incredible scene. It was horrifyingly violent in the South. Many civil rights campaigners were killed. Almost all of them were arrested, even if they were white. When the Civil Rights Act passed, it required the U.S. government to send the U.S. military into Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas to integrate schools. So the community and the police not only were resistant, they refused to enforce the law. The response of the Chicago police to black demands for civil rights was mostly a hostile one. You know, the police are not necessarily willing to go to the full extent of their power to protect and serve black people who are trying to kind of pry open 
the lid on a racist society in a racist city to try to achieve better opportunity for themselves and their families. A presidential commission appointed in 1967 and headed by Governor Kerner of Illinois surveyed 24 riots in 23 cities and described America as a racist society. That commission made some very good recommendations. It made recommendations directed at education, at jobs, affordable housing, in addition to have police departments more fully reflect the, the nature of the community. The problem is, as with most commissions, we never did it. The Kerner Commission recommended a whole lot of programs be directed at cities to provide more jobs and raise the standard of living and improve housing. But when it came time to pay for that, the money was not there. And remember that it was just the next year that Richard Nixon was elected president of the United States. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. In a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. And Nixon was the first president to politicize crime. He ran on a law and order platform. He, one of the first things he pushed through is the Omnibus Crime Act of 1968, or 69 rather, the first time we federally funded some local police. And that changed the whole tenor of the police community discussion to this issue of we have to have order and we'll do it through enforcement. And they were very strong about it. And then things got worse. Ronald Reagan was elected president and he declared a war on drugs. That whole war was based on arresting as many people as possible. Once again, the easiest arrests are on the street, poor people, African-Americans, Hispanics, poor whites. And the prison population swelled. The cops got more money, depending on how many arrests they made. The, the kind of law and order trope continued on, even into the Clinton administration with, with his disastrous crime bill. With the, with the war on drugs, and of course there was also the war on crime itself, did that lead to a kind of more military sense of what police were actually doing? Yes. I mean, anytime, first of all, it makes no sense to declare war on your own population. But anytime you do declare war, you have the police adopting a warrior mentality. Officer Friendly was long gone by the time the war on drugs came along. Everyone was a potential, at least every poor person, was a potential suspect. Every potential suspect was potentially dangerous. Police began to ask for better weaponry, more weaponry. The federal government supplied it through the Department of Defense. So all of a sudden, cops had armored personnel carriers, Black Hawk helicopters, assault weapons, even in some cities, tanks, because they didn't want to be outgunned, and they were never outgunned. But it created an atmosphere that they were soldiers fighting against an enemy, their own population. Arrests shot up, even though crime was going down and going down sharply, and incidents of police violence and police deadly force increased dramatically. By the time things like the war on drugs are happening, the war on crime that begins during Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. By the time these things are happening, local police departments are already having their proverbial sights set on black communities. So, you know, by the time the war on drugs begins in earnest, it's no surprise that that quote unquote war is vastly disproportionately waged in black communities because that's already where police departments are training an enormous, immense amount of their focus. And so when people ask, 
why the war on drugs became largely a war on black people, my response is that it's because when the war on drugs begins, the police who are the frontline agents of that war on drugs were already charged with and expected to and expecting to be essentially containing and surveilling and harassing and arresting black people. But what happened through the 1970s and 80s as more and more police departments recruited African-American officers? The short answer is that it didn't really fundamentally change things in terms of how the police actually functioned. This was a, an idea and a goal that a lot of activists, both in Chicago and elsewhere, pushed for a really long time, was that maybe one way to solve the fraught relationship between black people and the police was to hire more police who were black. But the assumption that undergirds that is that the problem is with individuals on the police force rather than with the actual police mission and police structure. So what ultimately ended up happening was that as police forces got more diverse, they really didn't become less violent and they didn't become less attentive to, attentive being a kind word for it, to black and brown communities because it's not really a, a matter of individual choice. And so the individual identities of the people who wear the uniform was ultimately less important and remains less important now than does the fundamental structure and concept and power endowed to the police writ large. The killings of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks were the most recent in a long line of violent acts by white police officers against unarmed African Americans. And while there have been attempts to change police culture, the violence continues. Why? The police unions, that's the long and short of it. They are so powerful. They've made it so difficult to investigate a police officer, to fire a police officer, and even if that police officer gets fired, it's very easy for that police officer to get rehired somewhere else. And I'm not sure how that power comes to be, but they've got it. And the way they've been able to lobby states and also at the federal level for laws. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems you see right now with Congress wrestling with these different proposed bills for police reform. The thing they've got to crack are the unions. So what, if anything, could be done to change police forces in America? There are a couple of things. The Democratic bill in the House revokes qualified immunity. Essentially, qualified immunity says if a police officer is doing something, even if he was doing it wrong, and terribly wrong, in the course of his job as an officer, he cannot be held accountable. That's a very bad kind of thing to start with. So repealing that's a very good idea. The National Registry would be wonderful if we could have it, but we can't. That requires two things. It requires that police departments actually find some of their officers responsible and guilty of misconduct and bad behavior, and then that they report that to some kind of national database. Neither is going to happen. Police departments, as presently organized, will continue to protect their officers no matter how guilty they are. Some of the other stuff, the Democrats have proposed money for community policing. I think that's just money that, that gets flushed unless you change policing relatively substantially. Outlawing chokeholds is fine. We have two proposals. The Democratic proposal outlaws chokeholds. The White House proposal says chokeholds are a bad idea unless you have to use one. 
<laughs> which leaves a whole lot of discretion for cops. I'm very fond of the idea of defunding the police in New York City. For every dollar the police get, every other service in New York, healthcare, education, sanitation, workforce development, housing, combined, gets 95 cents. So it makes a great deal of sense to, uh, to move some of that money out of policing. But we still have to do more. We have to demilitarize the police, and we have to establish a means of holding police accountable outside the police department, and they will fight that tooth and nail. Gary Potter, Professor Emeritus, Eastern Kentucky University. My other guests, Leonard Moore, Professor of History, the University of Texas. Simon Balto, Associate Professor of African American Studies, the University of Iowa. And Bill Allison, Professor of History at the Georgia Southern University. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.